0: Good morning. Thanks for coming. Uh, It's my job to talk about literary analysis, teaching the classics from Seuss to Socrates, literary analysis for everyone. But before I get started, I want to um, ask if any of you are just hot this morning. I am from northeast Washington state, where the air is thinner (laughs) and drier. And I'm having trouble adjusting. Somebody told me yesterday that if you move here, it takes a few months for your blood to thin out or something like that. A year, few years. Okay. You're from Mercer Island. Oh, we'll talk afterwards. It's God's own country out there. Bellevue, right on. Well, let's, just, well, let's just stop and ask. Is there anyone from the great Pacific Northwest here? Just the two of you? Yes. Excellent. Well, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a blessing to be invited. I gave a lecture yesterday at which I talked about the fact that uh, both children's stories and adult classics share some things in common. And we talked yesterday about the fact that thematic material, universal themes, exist in children's stories as well as adult classics. And that a great way to get your students involved in talking about the great themes of literature is to start when they are in fact reading the children's stories when they're young enough to be engaged and engrossed and enraptured by bedtime stories. Because the reason we pick bedtime stories to read to our kids, the reason we say, oh, this would be a great one for me to read, is because of the existence of those universal themes. And part of providing a sound education for our students is directing them towards contemplation of those universal themes. The connection, then, between... Children's stories and adult classics is one that I want to... I explored yesterday, and I want to explore in some more detail this morning. Come right on in. Come in. However, what I want to do first is just make a comment or two about why it is we are educating our kids in the first place. Why do we get up in the morning and slog to the kitchen table and sit them all in their spots and say, page 15... It was page 14 yesterday. It's page 15 today. What am I doing here? Why all this hard work for no recognition? Why all this slog through the curriculum materials when I get the funny looks in the supermarket? Oh, you homeschool. Missy went to get my, my son, got his driver's license last week while I was out of town. My first child with a driver's license happened on Monday. And um, she's understandably, completely freaked out. But she went to the the car insurance place and said, how much is it going to cost? And they told her an ungodly number. And she said, my goodness, that's expensive. Do you have any discounts? And they said, well, of course we do. We have a good student discount. You guys have probably been in, you know what I'm about to say, don't you? We've got a good student discount. All your son needs is to produce an official transcript showing a 3.0 grade point average, and he can get the 25% discount. So she made the crucial error of saying, well, he's homeschooled. And her behind the, the counter, her face fell. And she said, oh, well, I don't know what you're going to do then. Don't you have something official? Now, I'm sure there are, there are presenters at this convention who can walk me and my wife through that whole process of getting something official. But she was confronted by the fact that she's fighting an uphill battle. She's standing against, really, the whole culture that she lives in. Saying, as I mentioned yesterday, saying, I'm going to do this on my own. And it's going to cost me a lot in time and effort and prestige and funny looks from strangers across the counter, but it's worth it to me to do it anyway. And I wanted to make a comment before I started today uh, just to get you all thinking about why it is that you're doing this and what it is that you're really doing. What is it is that you're doing? Are you trying to send your kids through the same sort of curriculum that they would be going through in the government school and just doing it at home, or are you trying for something else? Is your goal a different kind of education altogether? If you've got it in the back of your mind that your goal is, is not just an education in a different place, home instead of school, but a different kind of education altogether, I want to help you. Because I have it in my mind that the education we're striving for as homeschoolers is something altogether different than the kind of education we would subject our kids to if we sent them to a government school, or trying for an awakening of their minds to ideas and a preparation of their minds to encounter and handle and interact with ideas so that eventually they will be men and women of ideas, thinking men and women. So they'll have the skills to say, that's a bad idea, and I know why. And in the sovereignty that is my own mind and heart, I'm not going to stand for that idea. Education that goes by the name, real education, sends our kids in that direction. So that at the end, they will be free in their minds and hearts. And no one will be able to enslave them with a bad idea. If you don't get that kind of education, eventually you're going to be somebody's slave. Maybe not in your body, but in your mind. Because somebody else will do your thinking for you. What I want to do is help you teach your kids to think for themselves to think for themselves. And the the one of the best places to get started in doing that is literature because literature is the record of the thinking on paper of history's greatest minds, history's most thoughtful men and women. So I think literature is a great place to start. The problem is literature's difficult. It's subtle. It's shady. The the points are kind of masked behind all this drama and all this character and all you can't get to what the author is saying very easily this is why i start with this connection between children's literature and adult classics it turns out that the thematic material in a children's story is very often similar to the thematic material in an adult classic and that's the point I tried to make yesterday. I want to extend that point today a little bit and say that it gets even better. The news is even better for those of us who are trying to use literature to give our kids the kind of education I've just alluded to. Not only are thematic elements the same between children's stories and adult classics, but also the structural elements of a story are identical. The, structure, the things that make up a story, the parts, the physical parts that make a story go from beginning to end are identical in a well-written children's story as they are in Shakespeare's Hamlet or Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn or Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. The, the, the elements are identical. And so we can use children's stories to get our students acquainted with these structural elements. What good does that do? Well, I hope to demonstrate as we go along today that an understanding of those structural elements is the starting point for getting at an author's theme. It's the starting point for entering into a conversation with the author about what he thinks is important about the world. What aspect of the human condition is really stuck in his craw and he has to figure out how it ticks? What part of human existence is under study in his book? Understanding the structural elements of a story is really the best first step in arriving at those ideas and interacting with them. So what I'd like to do is show you what those structural elements of a story are and how we go about discussing them with our students. The last, the last preliminary comment I want to make is that discussion that I just mentioned is the key to the kind of education we're talking about. You can't get it from filling in the blanks in a workbook. You can't get it from doing what you're doing right now, which is taking notes in a lecture. You should take notes, because every word that drops from my lips is a wonderful pearl of wisdom. <laughs> But in the end, the most important thing you're going to do this morning is not write down what I say, it's talk to me. That's the most important thing you're going to be doing. When I ask a question, answer the question in your mind. Confront it, raise your hand, contribute to the discussion. It's the exchange of ideas between us that amounts to an education. When I present you an idea and you say, I never thought about that before. I don't know why my answer was what it was to that. That's when education happens. I was in college once, and I was a freshman in college, which is one of the most arrogant categories of people there are, freshmen in college. And I was the most arrogant of all of them. I was a preacher's kid. I grew up knowing all the answers to all of life's questions. And I walked into college with all the answers on a list in my head. And I I was the roommate of a very intelligent person who came from a different religious philosophical background than I did. And I knew that he had particular perspectives on things, but I had been taught by my upbringing that only ignorant fools had those perspectives. And so I just assumed without any ill will that he was an ignorant fool. Turns out he wasn't. (laughs) Nothing like an ignorant fool. And we had a a conversation once, and I said, here's what I believe. And he said, oh, really? Why? And I realized I had no idea why I had the perspective I had. I had a lot of knowledge about this subject and a lot of answers for his questions about the subject, but no education on the subject whatsoever because I'd never been confronted with the questions myself. I never said, I don't think I know everything there is to know about this. I don't think I know everything there is to know about my own opinions. I am not omniscient. (laughs) When that dawns on you, you're getting an education. When that idea dawns on your mind... When that idea dawns on the mind of your students and you can see it happening, you're giving your kids an education. That's what education is. The realization that I'm not omniscient. We need to have it. Until you have that realization, you think you are omniscient and you're deceived. Right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through a children's story and I hope by the time we're done to show you all the structural elements of a story so that you can turn around and show these to your children and get them on the road... To that realization The the more familiar they are With the great works of literature The more they can get down inside them And understand them And realize what the author is saying The more they're going to be confronted Over and over again with the fact That they are not omniscient That smarter people than them Have been confronting these questions Since the dawn of human civilization And that's what we're looking for That's the kind of education We want to pass on to our kids So the structural elements of all stories Are the same whether they are uh, Leo Tolstoy's great novel, War and Peace, which you don't want to read with your kids right now because you don't have the next two years to do it, or A Bargain for Francis by Russell Hoban, which is an I can read book, which means that none of the words in the book have more than three syllables because it's designed to help little ones learn how to read and it's designed to help put little ones to bed at night. If it's true that both of those stories, War and Peace and A Bargain for Francis, have the same structural elements, which one should you use to teach those structural elements to your students? (laughs) Right! (laughs) So what are those structural elements? Let's talk about them for just a moment. I can make this work. There we go. We arrange the structural elements of a story on what we call the story chart. And it's this big oval with a triangle in the middle and little ovals all around the triangle. And we counsel, in our seminar, we counsel moms and dads to put this up on the chalkboard when they begin analyzing a story for its elements. But the terms that are in all caps on this chart represent the five structural elements that all stories have in common. And I just want to talk through them for a moment real quickly. At the bottom, we have conflict. Can everybody see the screen? It's as large as I can make it. I apologize. At the bottom of, this, of the diagram here, we have conflict What is conflict? It's a simple term. I'm not looking for some deep answer. I'm looking for an answer that a a fourth grader could give you. Yeah, the conflict is where your knuckles go together. Exactly. Conflict is the problem in a story. Every story, you probably are instantly, instinctively aware, has a conflict. Not all of your students are aware of this, by the way. I was teaching a junior high writing class once to primarily girls, and I said to them, I made a grave, grave error, I said to them, I'd like you to write me a story for grading and evaluation by next Wednesday. Proceed. That was all the direction I gave them. Terrible mistake. Because what they said was, a story? Wow! That's great! And they grabbed reams of paper. And they grabbed those pens that have the glittery pink (laughs) ink in them. And they went to town writing me stories. And they wrote volumes of stories. And they all had a beautiful story that was close to their heart and all of the stories said the same thing. And the stories went like this. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess. And she lived in a beautiful kingdom. And she was the beautiful daughter of a beautiful king and his beautiful queen. And she grew up to be a beautiful young woman. And she was the envy of all the beautiful princes in the kingdom. And once a, a handsome, beautiful prince came by on his beautiful white stallion and swept her up in his arms and took her off to an even more beautiful kingdom, if that were even possible, where she lived a beautiful life into beautiful old age and died happy. Amen. <laughs> Gorgeous. I said to her, I said, the story's beautiful. (laughs) It's absolutely. But not to put too fine a point on it, nothing bad happens to this girl, so I'm not interested. And the truth is... I wasn't that mean to her. I said, that's very good. A for effort. We'll talk about the rest later. But the truth is, we're not interested. We don't care about a story where nothing bad happens. Why is that? Are we all just kind of depressed creatures? (laughs) I mean, you, know, you understand what I mean. You don't care about a story where nothing bad happens, do you? You don't take time to watch it or read it. Why is that? Because it's, it's not real life, of course. The world we live in is shot through with conflict. Original sin. The, every, the con- conflict is everywhere. If a story doesn't have conflict in it, it's not real. It doesn't call out to us. It doesn't connect with us, and so we're not interested. Every story, therefore, that we're reading 100 years later that's a classic has a conflict in it. The first step in all literary analysis is talk about the conflict. Figure out what it is. Turns out conflict comes in just a very few categories. There's conflict between men. A man versus man conflict. There's conflict between man and the natural world. A man versus nature conflict. There's conflict between man and God or man and fate. There's that sort of conflict. There's a conflict between man and society. The human world around him. The rules that society's trying to shove down his throat. And there's a conflict between man and another part of the same man, a conflict within a man, a man-versus-himself conflict. Ask your students, what category of conflict is at work in this story? Is it a man-versus-nature conflict? Is it Jack London's uh, great story, To Build a Fire? Has anyone ever read that one? A man-versus-nature conflict, right? There aren't two men in the whole thing. It's just one man and the cold. That's the conflict. Who's going to win, the man or the cold? Is it a man versus society conflict? Anybody ever read Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain? Huckleberry Finn, the great protagonist of that story, is at war with American society from beginning to end. And the rules that make up how you live as an American hem him in and push on him, and he resists the discomfort of it throughout the whole story. A man versus society conflict. The first step is finding out what sort of conflict we're dealing with. The next structural element that all stories have in common, of course, is plot. Plot. What is plot? Again, an easy question that you could ask your second graders. What happens? Very good. The plot is what happens in the story. Now, that's a plenty good answer for second graders, a class full of second graders. However, some of your classes may have older students in them. And when you're reading A Bargain for Francis with your older students, which I counsel you to do, by the way, and I'll hopefully make that clear as we go along, you might want to be a little bit more specific about the plot. The plot of a story can be divided into five little subsections. And those are represented in the ovals that go around the outside of the triangle here. The first of those is the exposition. Exposition. Who knows what exposition is? We're having a discussion here, so fire away. Yeah, kind of the setup, sure. It's where the author exposes to his readers the imaginary world that he has created for them to run around in for 200 pages or whatever it is. And he describes the world, He gives some details about the physical setting, talks about the characters in the story, outlines their relationships a little bit, maybe hints at the coming conflict, sets the story up, the exposition. Your kids need to be able to read and say, we are in the exposition part of this story, and after this sentence, we're in the next section. Exposition seems to be over now. I think we're moving on towards the real meat of the thing. And that meat is called rising action the rising action of the story. There's usually a point in a story where the rising action sort of takes off. And your students can learn to identify the point and think clearly about that point being the one where the rising action begins. The rising action, of course, is where the conflict in the story becomes clear and events start to take place in the story as a result of the conflict that increase tension in the mind of the reader or increase tension in the lives of the characters. And the reader begins to think, wow, this story is picking up speed the tension increases throughout the rising action section until finally the reader, if he's really a you know, self-aware reader, says something like, my goodness, something's got to give. <laughs> That's when you know it's time for the next part of the story. And the next part of the story is the climax at the top of our little ca- uh, triangle here. The climactic moment in the story, that I'm going to just tell you because you probably already know. We'll just move on to the next one. It's the highest point of tension. In the story, here's a, here's a detail or an event or a decision made by one of the characters or a response that he gets from the gods or from fate or from nature that has the effect of putting in motion a chain of events that will eventually solve the conflict for good or for ill. Sometimes you can't see that climactic moment coming. And sometimes you don't really realize what it is until you go back and look at the story again after having finished it. But when you can look back on a story and say, oh, I see, from that moment on in the story, everything that happened was a foregone conclusion. Things were put in motion at that moment that eventually, inevitably, resulted in the conclusion of the story. That's the climactic moment, the turning point in the story. A huge chunk of literary analysis hinges on what you think the climax of the story is. And so being able to think clearly about it is very important. You've probably read a million stories where you just read the story from beginning to end, half-heartedly examined your own feelings at the end of the book, and put it back on the shelf, right? I know I have. That's my preferred mode of reading. I read from beginning to end, decide whether I have a good feeling in my belly or a bad feeling in my belly as a result of the story, and then move on to the next one. Without ever saying, I wonder what the climax of that story was. What moment, what sentence in this story would I identify as the climactic moment? The the minute I go from thinking about my belly to thinking clearly about the story, I'm involved in literary analysis. And so are your children, no matter what story they're reading. One more thing I want to say about the climax of the story, and this is going to be important in our discussion. The climax of the story needs to relate to the conflict. The climax of the story is the turning point of a particular conflict moving toward its own resolution. A particular conflict in the story has a climactic moment where the story turns and this particular conflict begins to be resolved. In a great work of adult literature, there's often more than one important conflict. And so there's often more than one important climactic moment in the story, depending on which conflict you're talking about. As a matter of fact, A Bargain for Francis, which we're going to read in just a very few minutes, has more than one important conflict in it, and therefore more than one important climactic moment, and therefore more than one reason to have literary analysis. Because literary analysis and literary debate of the kind that you see in magazines and the kind that you see in, in uh, scholarly works about literature comes from the fact that different literary interpreters think the conflict is different. The most important conflict is different. Therefore, the climactic moment is different. Therefore, the theme of the story is different. The most important theme of the story is friendship. No, it isn't. The most important theme of the story is death. <laughs> no, it isn't betrayal. And or Maybe all of those themes are present in the story, and they all get resolved at a different point. Being able to interact with those opinions is the foundation of the literary education. So we're going to talk about how to find the climactic moment and connect it to a particular conflict as we go along. The denouement of the story comes after the, the climax. That could also be called the falling action, where all the tension that's building in the first half of the story before the climax starts to drain out of the story, like the water out of a bathtub. If you're, reading the, if you're playing the game Clue, the denouement is where you find out that it was Mr. Plum who did it in the conservatory with the lead pipe. And you go, Ah, oh, yes, I get it. All the questions that have been unanswered in the first half of the story suddenly find their answers. And you go, oh, right, right, I see. That's the denouement section. In the Charles Dickens novel, the denouement is often very long <laughs> because it's fun to have people get married and go off and have productive lives. And you say, oh, he's going to marry her. I love that part. And, the, you know, Dickens was paid by the word writing in, you know, women's magazines in the 19th century. So that was high-dollar stuff. So the denouement can kind of go on and on. Sometimes it's very, very short. To Kill a Mockingbird has about a one-paragraph denouement in it. And finally, the conclusion... Uh, The the conclusion is the part of the story where the author says, I am finished now with this story. I'm going to move on to write other great works of literature. But before I go, I want you to remember the characters in my story like this. And so he puts them in a a physical location, puts them in a particular relationship with each other, and says, here's my point one more time. Don't forget my point. This is the last thing you're going to remember about Huckleberry Finn, says Mark Twain. So when you think about Huck, Huck... I want you to think about him in the last scene where I put him in his book, sliding down a lightning rod to escape from the house that he's going to be civilized in and heading out for the territory ahead of the rest because he's been to civilization before and he can't stand it. That's the last scene of Huckleberry Finn. Huck's just, he's naked, running off into the woods with all elements of American civilization stripped away and he's running from them as fast as he can go. And so Mark Twain gets a chance in the conclusion to say one more time, there's something the matter with... American society. And the good people in my story strip it off and run from it as fast as they can. Don't forget. That's my point. So the conclusion is a great place for the author to do that. Three other, quickly, three other structural elements of a story. There's the setting, which I put here behind the plot, so it sort of backs up the plot. Obviously, the setting is the location of the story, the time in which it happens, the kind of people among whom it happens. We're not going to get to say much about setting today, although in our full seminar we talk about it at great length. The characters, obviously, are the people in a story, an important structural element. There's no such thing as a story that's not about people, even if it's about mice or rabbits or hobbits. Still people. And finally, the theme of a story, which is the point, which you're trying to get to through a structural analysis, eventually is, what is the author's main idea? What truth about human nature is he rolling around on his tongue? You know, when you're a great author and you come up against a a, a problem in the world, you have to write a book about it. The rest of us don't. When we come up against a problem in the world, we go, "Ah." (laughs) kind of, you know, shuffle on through, muddle on through. But not a great artist. A great artist says, no, there must be painting about this problem, or there must be a novel. And so that's how we get the classics. So what we want to do is get to that theme. What is it that's stuck in the author's mind and he couldn't rest until he'd written a novel? The way we get to theme is that we talk about conflict and plot. That's the first step. So I want to do that today. Just keep in mind what we've talked about, the importance of conflict, exposition, rising action, climax, which is connected to conflict, denouement, and conclusion. And then I'd like to have a discussion about the story we read to see if there are some differences of opinion about where the parts of that story should go on the chart. And maybe we can do some real literary analysis before we quit. A Bargain for Francis by Russell Hoban. I may have to stand in front of the computer. By the way, this is one of the great classics of English language literature, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. It was a fine summer day, and after breakfast, Francis said, I am going to play with Thelma. Be careful, said Mother Why do I have to be careful, said Francis. Uh, Remember the last time, said Mother. Which time was that, said Francis. That was the time you played catch with Thelma's new boomerang, said Mother. Thelma did all the throwing, and you came home with lumps on your head. (laughs) I remember that time now, said Francis. And do you remember the other time, last winter, said Mother? I remember that time too, said Francis. That was the first time there was ice on the pond. Thelma wanted to go skating and she told me to try the ice first. Who came home wet? said Mother. You or Thelma? I came home wet, said Francis. Yes, said Mother. That is why I say be careful. Because when you play with Thelma, you always get the worst of it. Well, said Francis, this time I do not have to be careful. We are not playing with boomerangs, we are not skating. We are having a tea party, and we are making a mud cake. <laughs> Be careful anyhow, said Mother. All right, said Francis. Frances took her dolls to Thelma's house. She took her alligator doll and her elephant doll. She took her snake doll and her teddy bear, too. As Francis walked to Thelma's house, she sang... Alligators, bears, and me are very fond of drinking tea. The elephant and the wiggly snake are happy when they eat their cake. Francis and oh, Francis and Thelma made a mud cake. They put daisies on it for frosting. Then Thelma got out her dolls and her tea set. "I'm saving up for a tea set," said Francis. "I'm saving all my allowances." This is the best kind to get, said Thelma. It is plastic, and it has red flowers on it. This is not the kind I want, said Francis. I want a real China tea set with pictures on it in blue. The tea set I want has trees and birds and a Chinese house and a fence and a boat and people walking on a bridge. I used to have that kind of tea set, but all I have now is part of the teapot. The rest of it is broken. "'That's why that kind of tea set's no good,' said Thelma. "'The cups break, and the saucers break, "'and the teapot and cream pitcher and sugar bowl break, "'and then the set is all gone. "'My set has red flowers, "'and it does not break unless you step on it.'" <laughs> "'Well,' said Francis, "'I'm saving up for the other kind.'" "'How much have you saved up?' said Thelma. Two dollars seventeen said Francis. "'How much does a tea set cost?' said Thelma. "'I don't know,' said Francis.' I'm sure they cost a lot, said Thelma It'll take you a long time to save up all that money I know, said Francis And I wish I had a tea set now Maybe I'll sell you mine, said Thelma But I want yours, said Francis I want a real China one with pictures on it in blue I don't think they make them anymore, said Thelma (laughs) I know another girl who saved up for that tea set Her mother went to every store and could not find one Then that girl lost some of her money and spent the rest on candy. She never got the tea set. This is what happens. A lot of girls never do get tea sets, so maybe you won't get one. (laughs) If, If I buy yours, I will have a tea set, said Francis. Eh, you said you didn't want it, said Thelma. And anyhow, I don't want to sell it now. Why not, said Francis. Well, said Thelma, it's a very good tea set. It is plastic that does not break. It has pretty red flowers on it. It has all the cups and saucers. It has the sugar bowl and the cream pitcher and the teapot. It is almost new, and I think it costs a lot of money. I have $2.17, said Francis. That's a lot of money. I don't know, said Thelma. If I sell you my tea set, then I won't have one anymore. We can have tea parties at my house then, said Francis. And you can use the money for a new doll. "'Well, maybe,' said Thelma. "'Do you have your money with you?' (laughs) "'I'll run home for it,' said Francis. "'All right,' said Thelma. "'I will think about it while you run home for your money.'" Francis ran home for her money. When she came back, Thelma said, "'I will sell you my tea set.'" Francis gave Thelma her money. Thelma gave Francis her tea set. "'No backsies on this,' said Thelma. "'All right,' said Francis.' No backsies. Frances went home with her tea set and her dolls, and she sang. A plastic pot can pour the tea for my dolls and friends and me just as well as China. Red is just as good as blue. Plastic cups are all right, too. Just as good as China. When Frances got home, she showed the tea set to her little sister, Gloria, ''That's a very ugly tea set,'' said Gloria. (laughs) ''What's the matter with it?'' said Francis. ''It's ugly,'' said Gloria. ''It's a nice tea set,'' said Francis. ''It's plastic,'' said Gloria. ''It has red flowers.'' ''It's ugly.'' (laughs) ''I like the china kind with pictures on them in blue.'' ''You can't get that kind anymore,'' said Francis. ''They don't have them in the stores.'' ''Yes, they do,'' said Gloria. ''They have them now.'' At the candy store My friend Ida got one yesterday And she showed it to Thelma So Thelma knows they have them at the candy store They cost (laughs) $2.07 Francis walked slowly to the candy store She looked inside And there was Thelma Thelma gave the storekeeper her money. The storekeeper gave Thelma a china tea set with pictures all in blue. Thelma did not see Francis as Francis walked away. Francis sang a little song as she walked away. Now that plastic's what I've got. Baxies are what there is not. Mother told me to be careful. But Thelma better careful. Be <laughs> Francis thought about no baxies all the way home. When she got home, she put a penny in the plastic sugar bowl of her tea set. Then she called Thelma on the telephone. Hello, said Thelma. Hello, said Francis. This is Francis. Remember, said Thelma, no baxies. I remember, said Francis, but are you sure you really want no backsies? Sure, I'm sure, said Thelma. You mean, I never have to give back the tea set, said Francis? That's right, said Thelma, you can keep the tea set. Can I keep what is in the sugar bowl too, said Francis? What's in the sugar bowl, said Thelma. (laughs) Never mind, said Francis, no backsies, goodbye. And Francis hung up. Francis waited for the telephone to ring, and when it rang, she said, Hello. (laughs) Hello, said Thelma. This is Thelma. I know, said Francis. I just remembered, said Thelma. I think I had something in the sugar bowl. I think it was a ring. Did you find a ring? No, said Francis. And I don't have to tell you what is in the sugar bowl, because you said, no backsies. Well, said Thelma, I just remembered that I put some money in the sugar bowl one time. I think it was some birthday money. It was $2 or maybe it was $5. Did you find money? You said no backseas, said Francis, so I don't have to tell you. I don't have to say how much money is in the sugar bowl. (laughs) Well, said Thelma, it is my money and I want it. Do you want backseas, said Francis? Do you want your tea set back and you will give my money back I can't, said Thelma, because I used the money for a new tea set. There's only a dime left over. I'll give you the new tea set and the dime. (laughs) The new tea set is the China kind you want. It has pictures all in blue. You said they don't make that kind anymore, said Francis. Well, this one was very hard to find, said Thelma, and I think it was the very last one in the store. All right, said Francis, bring it over. Thelma brought over the china tea set and the dime, and Francis gave back the plastic tea set. Then Thelma took the lid off the sugar bowl and saw the penny. (laughs) That is not a very nice trick to play on a friend, said Thelma. No, said Francis, it is not. And that was not a nice trick you played on me when you sold me your tea set. Well, said Thelma, from now on, I will have to be careful when I play with you. Being careful is not as much fun as being friends, said Francis. Do you want to be careful, or do you want to be friends? Oh, I want to be friends, said Thelma. All right, said Francis, then I will give you halfies on the dime. Francis and Thelma went to the candy store with the dime. Francis bought bubblegum and Thelma bought lifesavers. Then they went back to Francis's house to skip rope. Gloria came out to turn the rope and skip, too. You and Gloria can skip first, said Francis to Thelma. I will go last. Thelma skipped first, then Gloria, then Francis skipped, and she sang. One for plastic, two for china, three for yours and four for mina, five for tea and six for cakes, seven for elephants, eight for snakes, nine's a trip to the candy store, then comes ten and ten skips more. Baxies one, Baxies two, Baxies are no fun to do. Careful once, careful twice, being careful isn't nice. Being friends is better. And Francis and Thelma shared their bubblegum and lifesavers with Gloria, the end. (laughs) Okay, the classics, right? Aren't they great? Now, what I want to do in the time I have left What I want to do in the time I have left is talk about the structural elements of this story. We're going to go to a blank story chart. Well, not a blank one, but one that has the little clues in it for you. And I want to put some details in every circle of the plot and the the, the part of the story chart that has the conflict in it. Let's talk for a minute about the details of the story. Take the details of the story as little pieces that we're examining and put them in their proper locations on the story chart as an aid to thinking clearly about the books we read. And let's see if we can't come up with... A conflict, a climactic moment, and a theme that follows from that, okay? Exposition first, though. Exposition. This is the part where the author exposes to the reader his imaginary world. What do we learn about the exposition, and when do we learn it? When the mom to her about the past experience. Okay, good. The little conversation Francis has with her mother, the very beginning of the story. But even before that, what do we know about the, the world of this story? Mm-hmm. It's a summer day, exactly, what else? It's a, it's a warm summer day right after breakfast. The greatest time of the world. Right after breakfast on a summer day. No school, nothing else to do. Sunny, hooray. Where? Where else? Where does it happen? It happens at Francis's house, exactly. And who else's house? Thelma's Velma. house, right? So it happens in a neighborhood. A little neighborhood of badgers. Badger neighborhood. Good. What else do we know about the exposition? Remember, we hear about some characters in the exposition, maybe. Some... Relationships between the characters. There's Francis, there's Thelma. The there's the mother, who is and the mother's advice to Francis is be, be, careful. be careful. What does that tell us about the, in the exposition part of this story? Past there's past conflict, yeah. There's and, and we get actually get some specifics about past conflict, don't we? Mm-hmm. What do we find out? What what are the specific conflicts? A there's a boomerang. There's some thin ice. At least those two things. We, have, we, we, we realize that Francis and Thelma have a bit of a back history that leads to what problem? Francis gets, the worst of it. Francis gets the worst of it. I had a cousin, my cousin Stuart. God love him. We lived in the same neighborhood when I was a kid, and we built treehouse together. And it was a fabulous, fabulous treehouse. It had insulation in the walls, carpet on the floor, siding, shingles, uh, electricity. The whole night had double-paned windows. It was a great treehouse. In fact, it was such a great treehouse, we had to build it on the ground. And we loved this treehouse. We worked on it all summer. And then one night, in the middle of the night, he sold it to a guy down the street and kept the money. Still a little bitter, actually. Every time I read this, I think of my cousin Stuart. He probably doesn't know that I should call him and tell him, shouldn't I? I'll get over it, though, eventually. Yes, there's a back history between Francis and Thelma that leads the mother to say, be careful when you play with Thelma. So we know something is coming. When does the exposition end and that rising action start? When do we know? After having read the story completely, we know how it ends, we know what happens. Looking back on the story, where can we locate as the part where we are no longer talking about the boomerang and the thin ice. Now we're talking about this particular conflict. Yes, Francis is at Thelma's house, and Thelma brings out the tea set. And Francis is on the hook. You could tell, couldn't you? I'm saving up for a tea set. Now we're talking about this story, aren't we? So you could actually coach your students into locating that moment as the moment when exposition stops and rising action begins. Why is it important to do that? Who really cares where the rising action starts in A Bargain for Francis? Russell Hoban might not even care. Why do we do it? That's right. So you can do it in Shakespeare's Hamlet when it matters, when the symbolism or the theme of Shakespeare's Hamlet is on the table so that the habits of mind that result in analyzing adult classics start to be put in place in even our youngest students. So rising action begins when the T-set comes out. And then what's in the rising action? What episodes? Sometimes when we're talking about rising action, I like to have the class divide the story up into episodes and give each episode kind of a label. Because you can't go through every detail of the story. It's not even necessary. What's the first episode over there at Thelma's house? What would you call it? Okay, even bigger than that, they describe the T sets, and then a transaction happens because of the T sets, right? What do you call that whole episode? What happens there to Francis? Francis gets taken advantage of again, right? So we, set, we have to call it the the swindle or something like that. You give it a little label, you know. Here it comes, once again, Francis is getting her lunch handed to her. What happens next after she does the deal with Thelma? Gloria. Gloria comes in and has her little moment in the sun saying, my beloved sister, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but once again, you've been had. <laughs> so Gloria does her little thing and Francis's eyes are starting to open. But they're not open all the way until the next little episode of The Rising Action. Can you see tension increasing, by the way? The next little episode of The Rising Action is... The Candy Store. Francis sees incontrovertible evidence that Gloria was right. And she's been had and she sees Thelma taking the ill-gotten gain and getting the kind of tea set that really they both wanted. And Thelma was just smarter and she concealed her desire. Right. So there's another episode in the rising action and the tension continues to increase. What happens next? Francis Francis goes home, does a little deal, arranges a few details and calls Thelma on the phone. And if you can summarize the next few pages or the next little conversations between Francis and Thelma, what is the effect of the story? What happens in the plot then? Payback. Say again? Payback. payback, yeah, the payback. There was the swindle, now there's the double cross or something like that. <laughs> or at least Francis brings Thelma back to the bargaining table in a very authoritative way, doesn't she? All of a sudden, Thelma is no longer in the driver's seat and it's Francis pulling the levers, right? Okay, when you're in the middle of the rising action part of a story, the next question you need to ask your students, and this is where the literary analysis really kicks in, and they start having to have educated opinions about what's going on. Every climactic moment has to be connected to a conflict, and the climax comes right out of the rising action. So one of the details we mention in the rising action is going to be the climax. Eventually, it's going to be the climactic moment. So which detail is it? What's the climactic moment? Well, it depends on which conflict you're talking about. And here's the real key. What's the conflict in A Bargain for Francis? That's a broad question. And I would actually not advise asking that question of your students. You need to go a little bit deeper and, and build up to the question, what's the conflict? Like for instance, what does the main character want and why can't she have it? There's a question that you can answer several ways maybe. Give me some answers to that question. What's the main character want in this story? Francis is the main character, obviously. We could talk about that too, but there's really no two answers on that question. What does she want? Friends. Oh, I heard three or four different things. Isn't that strange? It's one at a time. A tea set. Francis wants a new tea set. There's the first answer you're probably going to get from 99% of the young students reading the book. Francis wants a tea set? Obviously, she does. Okay, yeah, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the tea set, let's talk about it for a minute, and then keep in mind other, con- other things Francis wants, and we'll come back around to them. If the conflict in the story is that Francis wants a tea set, and why can't she have it? Because life is full of pitfalls. <laughs> There's things in the way of getting a tea set. What kind of conflict is that? What category of conflict would it be? Man versus what? Or badger versus what? Badger versus badger. One of the reasons that's a conflict is that Thelma stands in the way. And Thelma's trying to prevent Francis from getting a T-set because Thelma wants the same T-set. There's a man-versus-man conflict, right? Man-versus-man. This, by the way, is the same conflict as the one between uh, Achilles and Hector in the Iliad. They both want the same thing. They're striving for the same goal, and only one of them can have it, right? Yes, ma'am? Part of it is, is this her versus herself? Because she's just ignorant. She has enough money. I was just going to say... There's other, we, could actually, we could actually talk about the tea set conflict In a couple of different categories It's man versus man because Thelma stands in her way It's man versus herself Because she's ignorant of the fact that she actually has enough money To buy the tea set that's waiting in the candy store for her It's also man versus herself or himself In another way too She's naive She's, naive. she's been taken advantage of by Thelma since time immemorial And this is just going to be another step in the whole progression So she's got to do some growing up before she is able to deal with Thelma properly, or at least not get taken advantage of. So there's a man-versus-himself conflict, a little coming-of-age story going on in there. What else... Oh, I'm sorry, I was getting ahead of myself. If the conflict is about the T-set, what is the climactic moment? When do you know, looking back on the story, when do you know that the T-set will end up in the hands that it eventually ends up in? When she calls Thelma... Or, when Thelma calls. When Thelma calls back and basically says, in effect, I'm on the hook. Now I'm bargaining. What do you need? Okay, good. So you maybe locate the climactic moment at that point when Francis says, Hello, this is Thelma. I know. <laughs> now you know the shoe's on the other foot, don't you? Maybe the first time you read through the story you didn't know, but now you do. After having, looking back on the story and trying to analyze where the highest point of tension is, you know. And then we can say that the little exchange that happens between them, that's denouement, that's falling action. That's been put into motion by the fact that Thelma called back. And once Thelma calls back, we know how it's going to end, and it's going to be fun watching it work out, right? What if the conflict isn't about the T-set at all? Somebody mentioned that Francis is naive. Is that a different conflict altogether? What does the main character want? Francis wants, let's put something in that blank besides T-set, She wants a friendship with Thelma based not on mistrust and deception, but based on honesty and openness and mutual affection, right? That's a different conflict altogether. What kind of conflict is that? It's man versus man in the one sense. Maybe even man versus himself again because Francis is the one that needs to grow up a little in order to have that kind of friendship with Thelma. Maybe Thelma needs to grow up too. Maybe it's an internal conflict in both of them. But where's the climactic moment of that conflict? Is it when Francis calls back, or Thelma calls back, and Francis is driving the hard bargain at the bargaining table? No. They talk about being friends. friends. Francis says he he puts she puts the question to Thelma right at the end. Hey, what's it going to be, Thelma? Do you want to be careful? Do you want to have a relationship based on mistrust and deception, or do you want to be friends? And you have to turn the page. Actually, to hear Thelma's answer because it's on the right-hand side of the page and so it's a nice little moment there for your kids. And you don't know what Thelma's going to say when you're reading it through the first time. So there's the moment. That's the turning point of that story. We find out what kind of friendship Francis and Thelma are going to have at that moment, not at the other moment where they're having the phone conversation. A different conflict has a different climactic moment. Are there any other conflicts in the story? That What else does Francis want besides a friendship and a tea set Revenge. Of course, this is a great revenge story. Completely apart from the fact of whether you approve of revenge stories or not, this is one. <laughs> Francis wants revenge. When do we find out that she is going to have her revenge? In the candy store. Francis sang a little song as she walked away, and she sang it in a completely different tone of voice than she sang the first song. Francis was a new Francis walking away from the candy store, wasn't, you? <laughs> wasn't she? Did you know that Frances would never be taken advantage of again when she was walking away from that candy store? Of course you did. Frances' eyes were finally opened. I've been a fool. Now I know what I'm going to do. Revenge is only a matter of time. That is what a turning point is. That's what a climactic moment is right there. But again, a, a third conflict, completely different conflict, and a completely different resolution. So we have three different points in the story that function as climactic moments for three different conflicts. And this is a story written for eight-year-olds. Imagine how many conflicts there are in, well, not even War and Peace, in Hamlet. Imagine how many conflicts there are in Huckleberry Finn. These are all opportunities for you to say, here's a different conflict, son, daughter. Where's the climactic moment? Where is that conflict resolved and why do you think so? Though the answer to the question may not be eternally important, depending on the book you're reading, the habit of mind that is necessary to accumulate the details from the story, put them into categories, develop an opinion, and back it up with a reference again to the text is what education is about. That's the habit of mind that leads you to be able to contemplate the great ideas in literature and come to that, finally, to that last, eventual end goal of education, realization of yourself as a limited creature. That's what we want. We want our our kids to realize that they are limited creatures and to know themselves philosophically in that way. And studying literature this way is a great way to do it. We can talk about the denouement of the story. Depending on the climactic moment you choose, everything that follows it is a working out of that decision and goes in the denouement section. And then we can talk about the conclusion. Let's talk about that for just a minute. The conclusion of this story involves which details? What's the last thing you see in a bargain for Francis? Say again. Sharing. You see sharing of candy. You see letting other people go first in line. You see singing together. Francis gives a little spin to the story's events in the last song. Do you remember what she says? Being careful isn't nice. Being friends is better. And so your little son or daughter goes to bed thinking about how much better it is to be friends rather than if you had read Ernest Hemingway to him thinking about death. <laughs> you, really, you really want that when you're putting your kids to bed rather than the other. So in one way, children's stories and adult fiction are quite different. <laughs> one of them is good for bedtime stories. Any questions about how we've gone through the structural elements of this story? This has been a very brief treatment, and I understand that. We go in some great detail in our, um, in our other uh, seminar that we've got. But Any questions about that process? Yes, ma'am. Yes, they have. have Halfies on the dime. Very good, very good. Another characteristic of a bedtime story which makes them a great place to start. All the problems get solved. They can come up against the idea later in their career that this isn't the way life goes necessarily and it's not the way literature goes much of the time. There's time for that lesson later. Yes, sir? that there 's some type of sub climax when the various things have to be prioritized because she still has the advantage after taking advantage of film but she has to put aside that advantage to choose that friendship is a higher priority than having won a conflict okay the question was the, the question had to do with whether there 's sort of a, a hierarchy of conflicts and therefore a hierarchy of climactic moments and that's really the crux of literary analysis, where you're saying, as an educated person who has thought about these things, I think this is the most important conflict in this story. This is the one we, that the story's really about, and everything else is in support of that main conflict. And the person down the road may disagree with you, and that's how debate happens. That's how the battle over which ideas are the right ones eventually happen. I think the Declaration of Independence is about liberty, well, I don't. I think the Declaration of Independence is about thus and so, and the, the other and liberty is just a, a you know a supporting idea. It's the same habit of mind, the very same thing we're doing, and so that difference of opinion we need to encourage even among our students and say, why do you think that? Let's talk about it. How does it come from the text? Get in the habit of being okay with having your ideas bump up against each other. I'm running up against it on time, and so I want to uh, take a couple more comments and then quit. Um, if you are interested in the approach to literature that I've been outlining. We have more information on it in our booth, which is number 802. So I'd be happy to talk with you at great length down there. I'm also going to be speaking one more time today at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on another aspect of literary analysis, the use of context and literary devices. We're going to be reading another children's story, and it's a great one, so I invite you to come. Um, Thank you for your attention, but I'll take one more question if we have... No, the rising action comes first, and in Lord of the Rings, you can't put the, the finding of the ring as the climax because you don't know how it's going to turn out yet. So what you, do, what, you put in the, what you talk about in terms of Lord of the Rings on a climax is, when do you know that the West is going to be saved? Because that's really the issue of the story. Will the West survive? And so when, is that, when does that become a foregone conclusion? That would be the point of highest tension. In it. So it would be much, af- much later. Maybe even when the eagles show up or something it's like that. that yes, that might be even the beginning of the rising action. Yes, comment here. Great question. The question was, when do you start doing this with your children? You, you can do, uh, the, the, uh, the questions that we teach you to ask in our program are graded, and there' are simple ones for young students, more complex ones for older students. We start doing these kind of very simple discussions about the plot and the conflict of a story when they're sitting on our laps and we're reading to them. Um, kindergarten, first grade. Uh, when they're old enough to read Bargain for Francis or have it read to them and understand what's going on in the story. When they're old enough to say, Francis wants a tea T-set. Then it's time. And the reason it's time is... It's simple. It's easy. Why not get them ready for the kind of thinking they're going to be doing as adults? Why not get them ready for a career as thinkers? And give them the opportunity to be statesmen someday rather than employees. You know what I mean? That that kind of education is, is possible. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, yeah. We'd say Francis wants a T set. Well of course he does, Johnny. Let's talk about where the you know climax of that story is. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, we go into this in a lot more detail in a complete treatment of what I've given you a snapshot of in our DVD seminar, which is for sale in our booth. Uh, Yeah, booth number 802. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I'm not supposed to overdo that, I don't think. (laughs) 802, 802, 802. (laughs) Thanks for coming, guys. I appreciate your attention. Thank you.